Our passage is Hebrews 7. So take a Bible, pull it up on your phone or your iPad, Hebrews chapter 7. There are notes in the bulletin where you can follow along. Hebrews 7. Last week we walked through Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is probably the most controversial passage or chapter in the book of Hebrews. This morning we come to Hebrews 7, which might be the most technical uh, chapter in the book of Hebrews. And what I mean by that is it's the kind of thing that you can read 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 20 times and you come away and say, I don't, I don't know what I just read. I don't understand that. If you're not really locked in, you can easily miss the argument. Even if you get locked in, I'll talk about this in a moment, you can easily take a rabbit trail and miss the main idea of the passage for sort of side debates. And so our aim this morning is to lock in, to work through a chapter that is admittedly difficult to work through and to do our best to take it all in one big bite. If you can do that, if you can see the big idea of Hebrews 7 and all the bits and pieces about Melchizedek, you walk away with incredible, incredible life-altering gospel hope. Don't get lost on the rabbit trails. Lock into the big idea and walk away with gospel hope. So let's start about uh, talking about the book of Hebrews as a whole. I've shared this thought with you every week. Uh, we'll continue to talk about it as we finish over the summer. The book of Hebrews is written with sort of a dual purpose. On the one hand, it's written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. Do not fall away from trusting in Jesus, from loving Jesus, from following Jesus. That argument really takes center stage in Hebrews 6, and we talked about that last week. But a twin purpose is the book not just warning you about something bad, but encouraging you to something good. Don't fall away from following Jesus, but positively keep trusting in Jesus. Keep loving Jesus. Keep believing the gospel. Keep following after Jesus with all that you've got. Hebrews is an interesting book on a lot of levels. Maybe the most interesting sort of curious piece is here in chapter 7 with a guy named Melchizedek. It's not the first time you've read his name in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 mention Melchizedek. He is a mysterious priest king who is only mentioned twice outside of the book of Hebrews. And you get a glimpse of that first mentioned in the book of Genesis, if you'll just look ahead with me, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, it says, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So that takes you all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14. Abraham's nephew Lot had gotten himself in some trouble. He'd been captured by a, a coalition of Canaanite warlord kings. And Abraham gathered up all his guys and they went after Lot. They rescue Lot. They get all the stuff back that had been stolen. And on the way home, they cross paths with Melchizedek. When you're reading it in Genesis 14, you say, I don't know who this guy is. He hasn't been mentioned so far. He just pops into the story out of nowhere, and whoever this guy was, he feeds Abraham and his army. He prays for Abraham and his army. It takes the form of a blessing, but in effect what he's doing is he's praying for Abraham and all of his men, and Abraham gives him a tenth, a tithe, of all the plunder that he had just taken, and then that's it. 
He disappears. He pops into the story. He pops out of the story. You don't know anything about him on the front end. You don't hear anything about him on the back end. Hundreds of years go by, and a guy you probably have heard of, King David, is sitting down one day to write a psalm. And King David is writing a psalm. We call it Psalm 110. It's a psalm about the Messiah. He's talking about who the Messiah is going to be, what the Messiah is going to be like. No one has said anything about Melchizedek for centuries. And all of a sudden, David says this, The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn, and he will not change, a mind, change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, he hasn't been mentioned in hundreds of years. And David, inspired by the Spirit, thinking about the gospel storyline in the Scriptures, says the Messiah is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then just as quickly as David name drops him, he disappears. No explanation, no follow-up, no footnote. You're looking in your Bible. Surely there's something here, right? I mean, he's nothing. He just, he pops into Genesis 14 and he pops out. Hundreds of years later, he pops into Psalm 110 and then he pops out and thousands of years go by and then the author of Hebrews just starts name dropping, just starts dropping this name in. Hebrews chapter five, verse six, Melchizedek, just a little breadcrumb. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, Melchizedek. Doesn't say much about him, just another, another little name drop. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, one more mention, Melchizedek. And then you come to Hebrews 7, the entire chapter really focuses on this man, Melchizedek. And you say, well, what do we know about him? Well, we know Genesis 14, he has this interaction with Abraham. We know Psalm 110, David says the Messiah is going to be kind of like this guy and a priest. And then we know what we read here in Hebrews chapter 7, is a very technical argument and some of the points that the author's trying to bring out. But I think that if you see the big idea, some of those points, some of those technical aspects begin to fall into place. So here's the big idea. It comes from Hebrews 7, verse 25. It's very simple. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost. That's the word used in verse 25 in several English translations. And he's able to save those who draw near to God through Jesus. So that's our big idea. Everything that we're talking about, we want to bring back to that big idea. We don't want to get lost in rabbit trails or side debates. But we want to stay focused on that thought. So you follow along. We're going to read the scripture and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham 
and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has served at the altar. It's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and this is Psalm 110, quotation, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made uh, such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath. And by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. They were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we read this chapter and there are things in here that are hard for us to think of, hard for us to make sense of, hard for us to, to see the significance of. And so this morning we ask for your help. Uh, we pray that the, the main things that we need to see in this text would be plain and clear to us. Father, we pray that we would leave with a greater love for you, a greater desire to draw near to you, a greater appreciation for what Jesus has done. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you, just quick show of hands, have ever read a book by Agatha Christie? Anybody ever read one of her books? I'm guessing a lot of you have. She is, by all counts, the best-selling novelist of all time. She was born in 1890, died in 1976. 
She wrote 66 mystery-slash-detective novels. And the plot of these novels, I hate to say it's predictable because that makes it sound like bad writing. It's not bad writing, but the plots of these novels are all pretty similar. And people love them. I mean, people have bought billions and billions, literally, of her books. She's the best-selling novelist of all time. In the publishing world, the only things that have been published more than Agatha Christie are the Bible and Shakespeare. So one, two, three. The Bible, number one. Shakespeare, number two. Agatha Christie, number three. 66 books. And in these books, it's pretty straightforward. Towards the beginning, you meet a whole bunch of characters. There's a, a murder or some heinous crime committed. The detectives begin to look at the situation and they say, well, we don't know who did it. It could have been this one. It could have been that one. It could have been this one. And as the reader, you get sucked in immediately and you start to think, ah, who did it? Was it this one or was it that one? Or maybe it was this one. And as you read through the book, you sort of change your mind. You get a settled opinion. This is who did it. This is the guilty party. And then they kill that character. And you say, well, it wasn't them. Somebody else. And then you get settled on this character, and they say, no, this character has an alibi. It couldn't have been this one. And you go through, and in the end, you find some sort of resolution. I mention Agatha Christie in her novels because she's familiar to many of you and because a similar game gets played with Melchizedek. Not that he's committed a crime of any sorts, but just sort of debate. Not a whodunit debate, but who is he debate. And maybe the worst thing that you could go home and do this afternoon, or maybe you've already done it this weekend, is Google Melchizedek. That's the worst. I'm just telling you, do not do that. That's like going to the doctor and saying, doctor, I got on Google today. I know exactly what's wrong. Doctor just rolling his eyes like, you Google, stop it. Stop. You can go down a million trails on the internet about who this guy is. And I just want to acknowledge a few of the common theories or answers about who is Melchizedek. One of the common suggestions is that it's Shem, the son of Noah. And you can go back and you can add up the genealogies and the dates and the ages and all this, and you can say, this guy was around. Some people think it was Shem. There's some other hints in not the scriptures, but outside the scriptures that maybe there's a connection there. I don't think there's any legitimacy to that at all. Some people say it was an angelic being. Like a, a divine being of sorts, like a, one of God's heavenly creatures that came down and was some sort of manifestation, wasn't really a person, he wasn't there before Abraham showed up, he wasn't there after Abraham left, he just sort of, this angel made an appearance, called itself Melchizedek and then went away. Some people think, this is probably the most popular view, is that it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It would be chronologically incorrect to say Jesus because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but it was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, it was what you might call a Christophany, an appearance of the Christ before he was born as Jesus and took on human form permanently in Bethlehem. I'm just going to be honest with you. If, if you believe any of those, you can be my friend. 
Okay? I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm not going to say mean things about you. I don't think any of the first three hold a whole lot of water. For a lot of years, I would have said, I think it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I think it's the Son of God, the one who possibly appeared with Daniel's friends in the lion's den, that fourth one walking around. It was the same sort of appearance with Abraham. But the more I read about it and the more I read Hebrews 7, the more I'm settled on the idea that this was just a human being. It was just a guy, and his name was Melchizedek, and he was the king of Salem, probably a reference to early Jerusalem, and he was a priest of the Most High God, God Most High. There was a connection between him and Noah, and this true faith in the Lord was passed down, and he was some sort of priest. And I realize we don't know a lot about him, and I realize you get really curious, and I realize there's all sorts of speculation that gets tossed around on the internet, and you can get into that stuff if you want. Here's the danger. So many people look at Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews 7, and all they want to argue about is Melchizedek. The only reason Melchizedek gets brought into the argument in Hebrews 7 is so that you learn something about Jesus. And so in your study and your devotion time and your research, if all you get wrapped up in is the identity of Melchizedek and you don't ever get to what Melchizedek teaches you about Jesus, it really doesn't matter where you land. You miss the point. I mean, one of those four is, is right or they're all wrong and we need a fifth one up there. It really doesn't matter which one of those you think it is. If you miss how this man points you to Jesus... You can identify him correctly, but you've missed the whole point of the passage. And honestly, most of the things that we're going to say about Melchizedek this morning are true regardless of where you fall on these possibilities. Right? You can sort of pick your possibility, think through it, argue about it, but all of these things that Hebrews 7 says about this man are not given to us so we can argue and have a whodunit mystery debate. They're given to us so that we see Jesus. And so that when we get to the end of the, the chapter, end of Hebrews 7, we're not ready to like grab your neighbor in the pew by the shirt collar and argue about who's right and who's wrong, but that you look away from yourself, away from Melchizedek, and you look to Jesus. And you say, what great gospel hope we have. And this man, Melchizedek, this, this figure, Melchizedek, is pointing me to truth about Jesus. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. What do I need to know about Jesus and Melchizedek? And we'll walk through these as quickly as we can. This is the technical part of the passage. Here's the first thing you need to know. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. The author of Hebrews wants you to understand that. This priesthood that Melchizedek leads and represents is greater, it's better than the priesthood that you read about throughout the Old Testament, the priesthood of Levi. For one thing, it's older, right? Melchizedek's priesthood is older than Levi's priesthood. And I'll just put some names up here so you can visualize this. Melchizedek and Abraham are contemporaries. They're on the earth at the same time. And before you get to the actual first high priest of Israel you got to go Abraham's great-grandson Levi, Levi's great-grandson Aaron. You're six generations down until you get to the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. Melchizedek is older 
And part of what the author of Hebrews is saying to you is, it's better. He also says, and I know this sounds strange to us, but he says it's, it's better because Abraham, this side, with Levi and Aaron, sort of in tow, as it were, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Right? They had this battle and they got this plunder back and they paid tithes to him. Look at verse 6. The man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and he blessed him. He blessed the one who had the promises. I mean, Abraham was already blessed. He had the promises of God and Melchizedek is adding to that blessing as it were. Verse 7. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 8, he talks about the tithes being back and forth. And, and one might even say in verse 9 that Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Melchizedek's priesthood is better because it's older. It's better because the Levites, in effect, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater. That's important because of the second thought here. Jesus is a high priest, not like Levi and Aaron. Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek. That's verse 15. There is another priest who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Jesus is like him. You want to know what Jesus is like? You need to understand something about what Melchizedek is like. Look what the author of Hebrews says in verse 3. You want to talk about a verse that gets wild speculation. He's without father or mother or genealogy. Ha! That's proof. He didn't have a mom or dad. I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is arguing at all. I think he's just saying, look, when you read about him in Genesis 14, you don't read about his mom or his dad. He just gets dropped into the storyline, and then he gets taken out of the storyline. You don't know about his birth. You don't know about his heritage. You don't know who his parents were. You don't know what happened to him at the end of his life. You know nothing about this guy. He just pops into the story, and then he comes out of the story. That's it. In the same way, Jesus is a priest, not because he came from the right tribe. The author of Hebrews admits, verse 14, Jesus came from Judah. The line of Judah, they weren't the priests. They were the kings. It was the Levites who were the priests. And Jesus wasn't from that tribe. Melchizedek wasn't part of that tribe. These men were priests based on the call of God on their life. That's the point of Psalm 110. The Lord takes an oath and the Lord says, not because your DNA is right, not because your genealogy is right, not because your family tree fills out correctly, but you're a priest because I say you're a priest. That's it. The Lord is taking an oath. He's making a promise. He's giving this command. That was true for Melchizedek and it's true for Jesus. Jesus is like Melchizedek. There's a similarity in that they're both priest kings. They're both priest kings. In Israel, those roles were separated. There was the king there was the priest, and there's stories, a few of them, about kings or priests who wanted to combine those roles. It never went well. The Lord didn't take kindly to it. They were separated. But Melchizedek was king, and he was priest. He was the king of righteousness. That's literally what his name means, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. He is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace, the king of Salem, the king of Shalom. Both of these characteristics mark his reign as king, righteousness and peace. Surprise, surprise, when you come to Jesus, you look at a passage like Isaiah 9, 
A child will be born. A son will be given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He'll have a throne, the throne of David, and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. You put all these pieces together and you say, Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek. Now flip it. This is a more important truth. Melchizedek is a high priest like Jesus. It's true. You can say Jesus is kind of like Melchizedek. But the real truth that you need to come away from in Hebrews 7 is that Melchizedek is actually like Jesus. Look at verse 3. He's without father or mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, we're talking about Melchizedek, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. So get this straight in your mind. I mean, this will really make you do some mental gymnastics tonight when you're laying on your bed. It's not that Jesus said, hey, let's make Jesus the Messiah to be like this random guy that pops into the Bible back in Genesis 14. That was not the thought process. The thought process is, this is who Jesus is. This is who the Son of God is. He is the King of kings, the Prince of peace. He will rule with justice and righteousness. We need someone who will be like him. And that someone was Melchizedek. He was like Jesus. His ministry, his life, his rule, his reign, all of it is pointing you forward to the true king, to the greater king. Jesus is the original. I know he comes second. Jesus is the original, and Melchizedek is the imitation. He resembles the Son of God. It's important because this is the last thing I need you to see. Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. Everything about Jesus is better than Melchizedek. He's like a a dim shadow in comparison to what we see in Jesus. Look at verse 22. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Why is it better? Well, several things. If you just look in the text, look at verse 23. There was lots of the old priests. Do you know why there was a lot of them? They kept dying. You kept needing new ones. They did it for a while and then they died. Jesus is better because he has an indestructible life. He never, he never will die. He will live forever. He's died, but he was raised from the dead. His life is indestructible. You don't need to replace him. He's not going to wear out. Look at verse 27. Unlike the human priests who were marked by weakness, Jesus is holy and innocent and unstained and exalted. He's perfect. Those former priests were imperfect. Those former priests had to first offer sacrifice for their own sins before they could represent the people. Jesus didn't have to do that. Look at verse 27. Jesus offered a single sacrifice. He did it once for all time. It doesn't need to be repeated. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says this old covenant in the law, it is weak and useless. That's strong language when you're talking about the Old Testament. It's weak and useless. In what sense? It can't save you. It can teach you about who God is and the holiness of his character. 
And it will certainly expose you as a sinner. And it will leave you wrestling with this tension that as a sinner, before a holy God, you need a mediator, you need a true high priest, but it will not save you. It will not change anything in your life. It will just expose the problem. It's weak and it's useless. Look at verse 22. He's the guarantor, Jesus is, of a better covenant. It's the only time in the New Testament that word shows up. And literally, in the legal world, in the first century, it means co-signer. He, he promises to pay your debt. And your name is on the, on the lien, but his name is right there beside you. If this person falls short in the payments, I'm going to pay it for him. I guarantee it. My name right there next to theirs. If they have a debt, it falls to me. He's the guarantor, the co-signer of a better covenant. One that he purchased not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Not a debt that he paid with silver or gold, but a debt that he paid with his life. We're going to celebrate that this morning in the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember that Jesus is able to co-sign on that debt because he gave his life as a payment, as a sacrifice for our sins. So that's the argument. The question is, how do we respond? Right? All these tight arguments. We haven't covered every detail, but we've hit the high points. How do we respond to that? And my suggestion to you is that verse 25 is the key. Verse 25 says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Three thoughts of how we respond. Number one, believe that Jesus can save completely. Believe it. You don't need to add to it. You just need to believe that he did what needed to be done. And that he is able to save completely. I'm reading the ESV. The ESV says he is able to save to the uttermost. Your translation might say something like this. It might say Jesus is always able to save. It might say Jesus is able to save completely. Jesus is able once and forever to save. Or Jesus is able to save forever. All these English translations are trying to get at the idea when it comes to your salvation, Jesus is up to the task. He can do it. He saves to the uttermost. It's not questionable, it's not debatable, it's not iffy, it's not up in the air, it's not, will it work this time? It's not, but you don't know how bad I am. It's not, well, I don't know if he's gonna do that for me. He might do that for you, but I don't know for me. There's a promise here, and it's a promise that you are called to believe. He is able to save to the uttermost. Do you believe that? Or when you think about Jesus, do you think, ah, oh, oh, he's probably tired of me and my mess. Oh, you know, I, I hate to bother him. I just keep confessing the same sins over and over and over again. He's probably tired of hearing that. The book of Hebrews is saying he is able to save completely to the end, forever and for always, to the uttermost. And the author of Hebrews, he tells you all this stuff about Melchizedek, and then he tells you Jesus is so much greater than Melchizedek, so you come away saying, you know what? I believe that he can save me. It's not iffy. It's not debatable. It's not questionable. It's not up in the air. It's not flip a coin. I believe it. 
And the first challenge for you and me this morning is just to have faith. Believe that Jesus can save completely. Secondly, draw near to God through Jesus. Draw near to God through Jesus. Look at verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Just a simple question this morning. Don't answer out loud. How many times in the last week did you stop and think about drawing near to God? I mean, you're here on a Sunday morning. I I imagine most of you believe in God. You believe there's a creator. There's somebody up there. Most of you probably wouldn't need to be convinced that he cares about you. He's concerned about you in some way, shape, or form. I'm just curious how often you and I stop to think about drawing near to God Not to get something, just to get God. How often does that cross your mind? It's something you see in the Psalms, and I'll put a few verses up. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul is thirsty for you like I'm in a dry and weary land without water. I'm longing to draw near to you. Not because you can do something for me, but just because I want to be close to you. I want to draw near. Psalm 73, 25, Asaph says it like this. Who do I have in heaven but you? There's not anything in heaven that I really want besides God. Can you say that? Like, I'll, I'll pass on the streets of gold, I'll pass on the mansions, I'll pass on the reunion with family. All that other stuff pales in comparison. There is nothing in heaven that I want besides just being with God, drawing near to the Lord. And on the earth, nothing in heaven but God, and on the earth, there's nothing I desire beside you. Nothing stands next to you as a, as a comparison. There's no close second. I just want God. Jesus did not live among us and obey the law and die as a sacrifice for your sins just to make things easier or better for you and me. He did all of those things so that by faith, by believing, we could draw near to God. And instead of being like Adam and Eve, hiding from God in the bushes, running from God when we hear His voice, covering ourselves because we're ashamed, we can enjoy His presence. We long to be close to God. Number one, believe that Jesus can save. Number two, draw near to God through Jesus. Number three, rest in the ongoing intercession of Jesus. That's the last part of verse 25. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. How many of you have been in a church, maybe a church you grow up in, I don't know, maybe Emmanuel at one point in time that had a pastor picture gallery? You know what I'm talking about? A little rectangle, eight by ten pictures, and they put them up on the wall and they have the dates of uh, the pastor, when he started and when he left, and they're all just right there in a row. Um, I got to admit, those are kind of weird to me. I don't know how you feel about them, but as a pastor, those are always a little bit strange. Uh, When we moved to Oklahoma, we went to our church, and uh, the first time I visited, I knew the first thing I was going to do as pastor. 
when you walked into the church, it was the obvious front door. You walked in, you're right there by the sanctuary. All the pastors were up on the wall, right, right there at like the welcome area. And I'm like, this is, no, this is weird to have all these pictures up here greeting you, just staring at you from the wall when you walk in. And so we took those down and I put them in a cabinet and we forgot where they were. Nobody knows. They're hidden in the church still to this day. But a lot of churches have these. I remember my church growing up had it, Trinity Baptist in Amarillo. And I'll confess, I think they're weird now. As a kid, I thought it was really cool. But I thought it was really cool because if you went down the pastor picture gallery at my church, you start with the color photos and then about halfway down the wall, you get to black and white photos. And like the second or third black and white photo, we had a pastor named James Bond. And I remember as a kid, I used to like to walk down that hallway and look up there and I'm like, James Bond was our pastor. How cool is that? That's the greatest thing ever. I don't know. I pastored a church in Kentucky. The church was started in 1825, so they're coming up on their 200th birthday. And uh, there'd been a couple of fires in the history of the church, so if they had a pastor picture gallery, it got burned down and they didn't replace it. But we did have a record of all the pastors, almost 200 years of pastors. Some of them served for, for decades, some of them served for months, but you had that long list of names, people who had come and people who had gone. I'm told I'd like to, to visit someday and go on a sort of a, a church sightseeing tour in the UK. I'm told at many old churches in the United Kingdom, there's like a, a piece of wood towards the back of the sanctuary. And on that board or that piece of wood, the names of all the pastors are carved. They didn't have pictures for some of them, but they're carved in. And some of them I've read and I've been told go back five centuries of just names listed up on the, the board or the pastor picture gallery or whatever you want to call it. As a pastor, those things are, in a way, humbling. It's humbling to look at a long list of names, whether it's pictures on the wall or whether it's names on a, a form or names carved into a board. It, it's humbling to look at those names and to know there was a church long before I was around. And I'm standing on the shoulders of people who came way before me and preached and served and did things. And that's humbling to acknowledge that and to remember that. It's also humbling to look at those lists of names or pictures on the wall and to know someday I'm going to be up there. I'm not going to live forever. Neither are you. We're born, we live, we die. None of us have inherently an indestructible life that you read about in Hebrews 7. And a lot of times I think as Christians, we think about Jesus and we say, you know, Jesus, he died to save us. He died on the cross to save us. And then after he did that, he came back to life and we went back to heaven where he belongs. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 7 adds an important detail that you need to reckon with. It's true that he came down and he lived among us. It's true that he lived a perfect life. It's true that he died our death on the cross. It's true that three days later he rose from the dead. It's true that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But verse 25 says not only is he alive now, but he always lives to make intercession for his people. Even now, he stands between you and the Father. You a sinner, the Father holy. And he says, I've, I've co-signed for those people. My name is on their debt. I've paid it. You count them as right with you because of what I've done for them. 
And you don't need to draw near to God through a a saint or a holy person. You don't need to draw near to God through an angel or through Mary or through anybody else. You draw near through the Son. He's alive now. He lives forever to do that. That's what He lives for now. To intercede for you before the Father. There's no thought of, oh man, He's got to be tired of my same old mess by now. He lives to do that. He lives to deal with your mess, to save you, not just to take you to heaven someday, but to save you to the uttermost, completely, now and forever. So we believe that He can save. We draw near to God through Him. We rest in His ongoing intercession. And then last, we celebrate the Lord's Supper with joy. What a great chapter to think about as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. And we pass out pieces of bread and cups of juice, and we're mindful of the body of Christ that was broken for our sins. We're mindful of the blood of Christ that was shed to pay our debt, to make us right with the Father. As we take the Lord's Supper, it's certainly a time to be mindful of your sin and mindful of God's holiness, but it's not a time just to feel sorry for what Jesus had to do, and it's not a time just to sit around promising God you'll do better. It's really a time to celebrate that what we could never do for ourselves, Jesus has done for us. The debt that we would never be able to pay, Jesus has joyfully and gladly paid. The relationship that we could never establish on our own has not only been established, but continues to be held fast by Jesus who lives to make intercession for us even today.